back and be with us this evening as we meet at 5.30. We'll be looking at Romans chapter 12 and verse 18 for our text and our study this evening. Come back and be a part of that study if you can. Let's talk a little while about hope and what the Bible says about hope. Everybody wants some sense of hope. When a person finally is ready to throw up their hands and quit, whether it's in religion or whether it's on their family or whether it's financial problems, they feel like they have lost all sense of any hope. They have nothing to look forward to. So everybody wants a sense of some kind of hope. The future is always brighter and it's always better with some sense of hope. If I have something to look forward to, something to hope for, then the future is obviously brighter and it's better. Some people have no hope. Let's open our Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 2, if you will. There's two or three passages that talk about people without hope. They don't have any hope. And this is talking about the spiritual hope, the hope of eternal life. Ephesians chapter 2, speaking of the pagan and the Gentile world, before and without Christ. It said that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Here's a picture of people who have no hope. As if there is no Christ, there wasn't a Christ, there is no hope in the world. Well, here's another passage. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul writes to the Thessalonians, trying to correct some misunderstanding that there may have been about the second coming. He said, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. In other words, you as a Christian, you have a loved one to die, and you shouldn't sorrow, particularly if that Christian, or, that, or if in the case that that one who died is a Christian, and a faithful Christian, do not sorrow like people sorrow, who don't have any hope at all. Some people have no hope. The same apostle would write in 1 Corinthians 15 and in verse 19 that if in this life only we have hope in Christ Jesus, we're of all men to be most pitied. And it doesn't use the expression no hope, but it describes of having no hope. That we're, if this is all we have, we have no hope, and we're of all men to be most pitied. The faithful child of God has hope. In fact, they have the only hope that is described throughout the Old and New Testament. So let's talk about the Christian's hope and describe several things about this hope. Let's start with this. Let's talk about the fact of hope and just establish the fact that we as Christians can have and do have the hope of eternal life. And then we'll talk about the nature of that hope in just a moment. Let's start with this. I can know something. It is altogether possible that I can know that I am a child of God. Let's turn to Romans, the 8th chapter, if you will, and in verse 16. Romans 8 and in verse 16. I can know whether or not I am a child of God. The Apostle Paul said, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In other words, the Spirit of God who reveals the will of God, Ephesians 3, my spirit is the knowledge of myself, and the point is when those two agree, then I can know that I am a child of God. I can look at the revelation of the Holy Spirit, 
here is what has, one has to do to become a child of God. I know that I have done that, and so now I know I am a child of God. So there's something I can know. I don't just wonder, I can know that I'm a child of God. Here's something I can see. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 3. Turn to 1 John chapter 3 with me, if you will, beginning at verse 19. I can see that I am pleasing to God. I don't have to wonder if I'm pleasing to God. I can know I'm His child, and I can see that what I'm doing is pleasing and acceptable in His sight. Let's start at verse 19. Watch for this concept. I can see that I'm pleasing to God. And by this you know that we are of truth, and we shall assure our hearts before Him. But if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. But if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Now notice at verse 24. Now he who keeps His commandments abides in Him and He in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom God, whom He has given us. So notice two or three times he talks about, I can see and I can know that I am pleasing and acceptable unto God. I don't wonder about that. Reckon I'm acceptable unto God. Reckon what I'm doing is acceptable unto Him. I can see that I'm pleasing and acceptable unto God. Let's go to another New Testament passage. This time in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. I can make my calling and election Sure. My, the invitation God has given to me, my calling and the election, is my acceptance thereof. So I know that I'm in a right relationship with God. I can know I'm part of the elect of God. I can make that sure or secure. Let's see that in 2 Second, Second Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse, verse 5. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. For this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. Now you know this passage well. And then knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, etc. Now let's drop down to verse 10. Therefore, be even more diligent, having described, adding to your faith, virtue to virtue, knowledge. That is, you're growing and developing. And when you do that, now verse 10, therefore be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. So I can know I'm a child, I can see that I'm pleasing, I can make my calling and election sure. I can have the hope of eternal life. Numerous passages talk about having the hope. Not wishing I might have the hope, but I can have the hope of eternal life. Titus chapter 1 and in verse 2, he begins his book on the note, in hope of eternal life. So those to, whom, to Titus, to whom he's writing, he talks about the hope of eternal life. Well, same book, he talks about looking for that blessed hope. That is, I can look toward that hope with the expectation of receiving that hope. Same book now, Titus 3 and in verse 10, becoming heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So three times already in the book of Titus, he talks about the hope of eternal life. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 11 talks about the full assurance of hope. And in Colossians 1 and verse 5, he talks about the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. So on and on we could go dealing with that. For example, one more, first, uh, John chapter 14, 1 through 3. Jesus said, I go away and I will come again and receive you unto myself. So he said, I'm going to come again and I'm going to receive you. There is hope that you can have something far better in the future. So I can know I'm a child. 
I can see that I'm pleasing to God. I can make my calling and election sure and I can have the hope of eternal life. There is the fact that the Christian has hope. Now let's go a step further. Now that I know the fact of hope, let's talk about the nature of that hope. What is it that we're hoping? What is hope? What's the nature of that hope? Well, let's define what we're talking about. What hope is. Hope is defined, according to Vines, as a favorable and confident expectation. There are expectations that are not favorable. There may be something that's favorable, but it is not something that is confident. You're not confident of that. Favorable and confident expectation, a good definition. Strong says it means to anticipate, usually with pleasure and expectation. Dictionary.com defines hope as to look forward with the desire and reasonable confidence. So both from the English word hope and the word that is translated hope, we get the idea that hope involves two elements of desire plus expectation. When there is a desire for something and then there is the expectation of that, you say you hope for that. Now let's talk about that for a moment. I might desire something that I never expect to happen, and I don't say I hope that. You might desire to be rich someday. You might desire to be famous. You might desire for the whole world to obey the gospel. You might desire for a loved one of yours to change their life, but you don't say you hope that unless you expect that to happen. Well, you might expect something that you don't desire. You might expect to pay higher taxes this year. You might expect something bad to happen to some of your loved ones. But you don't say, I'm hoping that'll happen because you don't desire. So hope involves a desire for something and the expectation of it. So if the passages talk about us having the hope of eternal life, not only am I desiring that, but that is by the very nature of the word telling me that I can expect to have eternal life. That's the nature of hope. But let's go further and notice in Romans chapter 8 and in verse 24, we're still describing the nature of this hope. What is hope like? When I have the hope of eternal life, what is it that I have? Well, let's turn to Romans chapter 8 and in verse 24. Romans chapter 8 and in verse 24, it looks forward to the unseen future. That's what hope is. That's the nature of hope. Notice Romans 8 now and in verse 24. For we are saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what does it still hope for? What he sees. In other words, if you've already obtained something, you're not hoping for it anymore. So hope by its very nature is looking forward toward the unseen future. Something is coming in the future that is far better and it's unseen and I'm hoping for that, I'm desiring, and I am expecting that. Now let's spend a little time in 1 Peter. 1 Peter talks about the hope that we have and we alluded to this principle a little bit earlier. 1 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope. So it is described here as a living hope. Now what sense is it a living hope? It's a living hope in contrast to the temporal and to the earthly that ultimately fails. We're not hoping for something that's temporal. We're not hoping for something that's earthly. 
that ultimately collapses. We'll see more about that in this very context in 1 Peter. But we're looking for something far better. We're describing again the nature of the hope. It is not just hope, but it's a living hope. Perhaps it's a hope that's alive in the sense that it's not idle. That this is not an idle hope, but this is alive. It's real, it's active, it does something. In other words, it produces something real within us. This is not a dead hope, it is not an inactive hope, but it's a living hope, the text says. But let's go even further, same context. Look at verse 4. Having described this living hope, he says, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It is described as an inheritance. Now, when we talk about an inheritance, you think of something that you're going to receive that comes due to you, you think. Or at least it's just something that you're going to receive from your parents or maybe your grandparents or a loved one. You're going to inherit something. Well, this hope that we have, we're looking for an inheritance. That same word translated inheritance is found in the Septuagint translation. That's the, the translation out of the Hebrew into the Greek, the translation our Lord used. So we're talking about a Greek word that would have been used in the Old Testament now because of the translation found in Deuteronomy. The same word found there has reference to Canaan. So the promised land of the Jews, that is, they're looking with anticipation of going to the land of promise, going to the land of Canaan that God had promised to Abraham was their inheritance. So it is our promised land that we're looking for. But there are three things that are described in verse 4 of our text. He says to an inheritance, first of all, that is incorruptible. What does it mean that it's incorruptible? Well, it means it's undying. It's enduring, it doesn't perish, and it doesn't decay. It is incorruptible. You may receive an inheritance from your parents, from your grandparents, and something could be corruptible about that. More about that in a moment. It is also said to be undefiled. We're still describing the kind of inheritance we're receiving. An inheritance that is incorruptible, an inheritance that's undefiled. In other words, it's unstained, unsold, it can't be ruined. And it furthermore does not fade away. In other words, it never loses its beauty, never loses its worth. Some have suggested it refers to a flower that never fades. That it never loses its flower, it never loses its beauty. It continues to blossom and continues to bloom. And so here is an inheritance. It's unlike an inheritance that we can think of. It's incorruptible, undefiled, and does not fade away. Now you think about an inheritance that you're thinking of receiving. It may be a large sum of money that you expect at the day of the death of your parents, you're going to receive, and finally by the time you receive it, the value of the money has, has diminished. It's not, it's not what it was 10 years ago. It's not what it was 20 years ago when they wrote their will out. Or you're going to receive the family farm, and by the time you receive it, the barns are falling down and the house is caving in. Or maybe the, the land has all grown up, and so it's corrupted, it's defiled, it is, it is something that begins to fade away, it loses its beauty and its worth. But not this hope, it is an inheritance that does not fade away and is incorruptible and undefiled. Same context now, we're still in 1 Peter. Look at verse 7. The nature of this hope is something that involves an approval and an honor from God. Look at verse 7. The genuineness, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found. Now this is in the context of the hope of verse 3. The inheritance of verse 4. 
that it may be found to the praise, honoring, glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Those three terms describe an approval and honor from God. What we hope to receive is praise. What does it mean? What are we talking about at verse 7? To the praise, honor, and glory. That's the approval that we receive from God as faithful servants. The commendation. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. It's not talking about God praising us in the sense that we honor and bestow honor upon Him and we worship His name. But He gives us praise in the sense He praises us for the job well done. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. We're looking for that praise from God. We're looking for that honor. The honor of wearing the crown. The honor of wearing the robe of receiving the reward. We're looking for that glory, that exaltation in heaven. So he's talking about the hope that is in Christ Jesus, a living hope. What, what are we talking about? An inheritance and an approval and an honor from God. Same verse, let's go again, at verse, or same context. Look at verse 9. Same context, still talking about the living hope of verse 3, the inheritance of verse 4, the approval and honor from God that we have. Now verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The nature of this hope is the salvation of our souls. Receiving the end of your faith. That's not the end in the sense that it comes to an end, but the goal, telos, aim of your faith. That is, your faith was pointing toward and aiming toward the hope of eternal life. And the hope of eternal life is the salvation, eternal salvation. So when we talk about the nature of the hope, what is it that we're hoping for? What we're hoping for, and by hope we mean there's a desire plus expectation, we're looking toward something unseen in the future that is far better than anything here. We're looking for a living hope and inheritance, approval and honor from God, and the salvation of our souls. Now I know hope is a fact. And I know the nature of that hope. Let's talk about the basis of that hope. On what basis can I say I have the hope of eternal life? Do I just kind of feel like I have hope? That I, I kind of feel like I'm saved. I have this, this feeling that, that I feel like I'm saved. What is the evidence that you could cite and say, based on this, I have the hope of eternal life? What's the basis of our hope? Well, let's start back in our text in 1 Peter. Let's talk about the resurrection of Christ. The same context, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, notice it, verse 3. Blessed, eulogy is the word, praise, be given unto God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He begot us unto a living hope, that is, the living hope was spawned, the living hope was produced because of the resurrection of Christ. That is the heart and the core of Christianity. From beginning to end of the New Testament, the heart and the core of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was raised from the dead. Every sermon you find recorded in the book of Acts focuses on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because that is the ultimate proof that Jesus is the Son of God and the Bible is real and the Bible is true. That if Jesus was raised from the dead, then anything and everything he said is absolutely true. Every endorsement he made concerning the Old Testament, everything he said about what we're to do and how we're to live and everything he taught must be true. So we're begotten again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 9 and in verse 12 and Romans 4.25. Let's go to Romans 4 and get that passage. 
tells us he was raised for our salvation. So what does that mean? Well, let's see. In Romans chapter 4 and in verse 25, he said, Romans 4, 25, he was delivered up for our offenses. That is, he was crucified, he was delivered up. He died for our offenses and was raised because of our justification. That is, his resurrection had just as much to do with our salvation as did his crucifixion have to do with our salvation. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. Chapter 5, verse 10. That we're saved by his life. For if we were enemies, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That is his resurrected life that he just mentioned in chapter 4, 25. Well, that harmonizes with what we see in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12. He had to be resurrected and take that blood and offer it before the throne of God. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 9 and look at verse, verse 12. Hebrews 9 and in verse 12. Not with the blood of goats and of calves, but with his own blood that had been shed, now that he's raised, he entered the most holy place once for all to have attained, having obtained eternal redemption. So not only did Jesus have to die, but he had to take and symbolically offer that blood before the throne of God in the most holy place. And had he not been raised from the dead, there would be no hope of eternal life. We couldn't be saved. He said, I thought we were saved by his death. We, we are saved by his death. But had Jesus died and stayed in the tomb, then he would not, we could not be saved because he had to be raised for our justification. So the basis of our hope, the reason we have hope is the fact that he was raised from the dead. And furthermore, 1 Corinthians 15 and in verse 20 says he is the first fruits. What does that mean? The same thing is true in your garden. When you plant a garden, the first product that comes on, the first fruit that is produced gives you promise that more is to come. So the first tomatoes you get are your first fruits. That gives you promise there is more to come. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he's the first fruits in the sense there's promise of more to come. We have the hope of eternal life because he was raised from the dead. That shows it's possible to be raised from the dead, and consequently there's some hope for the future. So what gives me the hope of eternal life? Every evidence I see that Jesus was raised from the dead, like the empty tomb, gives me hope for eternal life. But let's go to Titus again. Titus keeps talking about this, the book of Titus, that is, keeps talking about this hope of eternal life. And so I want to suggest to you that the grace of God is pictured here in the book of Titus as being a basis for the hope that we have, the grace of God. And as you're turning to the book of Titus, chapter 3, I might just cite Ephesians 2, which is mentioned here, by grace are you saved, the text says, verse 5, by grace are you saved through faith, verse 8. So grace has everything to do with our salvation. But let's go now to Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and verse 7. Having described how corrupt, Paul said, we used to be in verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, serving various lusts, living in malice, hateful, hating one another. But then he says at verse 5, verse 4, the kindness and the love of God toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. In other words, we were allowed to change. We lived so corrupt, we didn't deserve salvation. In fact, we deserved to be condemned for what we did. 
But, but, but something happened. What happened? God's kindness, God's love, not anything we did, but according to his mercy he saved us. Now, verse 7, having been justified by his grace. So on what basis can I have the hope of eternal life? The fact that Jesus was raised from the dead gives me that hope, and the grace of God gives me that hope. Not because we deserve that. I don't have the hope of eternal life because I think I deserve that. You don't think you have the hope of eternal life because you think you deserve it. However, we often sometimes talk and act as if it's based on merit. Now, in Bible class, we would never set up, I believe it's based on merit. I believe we deserve salvation. We would never say that. We wouldn't tolerate it if it was taught from the pulpit, but our language betrays us. How so? We may say this. Someone dies and we'll say, you know what, if anybody will go to heaven, he will. If anybody will go to heaven, he will. What do you mean by that? Do you mean they live such a good life and such, such a great life that you think they now deserve to go to heaven? If anybody will go to heaven, I know he will because he was such a good man. That almost sounds like we think we deserve salvation somehow. It's not based upon my merit. Not according to works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy. Or we may say this, on the other end of that spectrum, someone may say, you know what, I just don't think I'm good enough. I, I just don't feel like I'll go to heaven. Well, why? I just don't feel like I'm good enough to go to heaven. Do you know someone who is? Do you know someone who's lived up to that standard, that, that they are good enough, that they'll go to heaven? It's not according to the works of our own righteousness. You see, my assurance is not based upon my feeling like I'm good enough. You see, when I have to stop and I think about the things that I have done, the sins for which we've had to ask forgiveness, I have to conclude that if I'm saved at all and I have the hope of eternal life, which this text says, it's based upon the grace of God. So on what basis can we say, I think I'm going to heaven because Jesus was raised and because of the grace of God. Let's add another element. Part of the basis of knowing that I can go to heaven is knowing that I'm doing what God says I should do. I know I'm doing what's right. I can know that. We started on that note. Not based upon some feeling I have. Not based upon some feeling. Let's turn to chapter 10 of the book of Luke. You, you, if you don't have something underlined there, this would be a good time to underline some things. Perhaps some of you have something underlined there from previous studies we've done from Luke chapter 10. Luke 10 verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are made subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. See the point? You don't know your name is written in heaven because you are rejoicing because of the way you feel. You, you know, I, I feel safe. I, I feel good. I'm happy. And so because of the way I feel, someone says, I think my name's written in heaven. You don't know your name is written in heaven based on how you feel. You may be rejoicing, something you may feel, because of your knowledge that you have. You know your name's written in heaven. Read again, look at verse 20. Rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Why are you rejoicing and excited and you feel good about yourself? It's because of your knowledge. Your knowledge didn't come because of your feelings. 
You see, when I know that my life is in agreement with the Word, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. When I know that, when I look to the Word and say, you know, here's what it says to do to be saved, and I've done that, I know that, based on that knowledge, I rejoice. Here's what it says to be a faithful child of God, and I look at that and I say, you know what, I'm, I'm doing the best I can to do that. I, I rejoice. That's what Luke 10 is all about. You see, I can know I'm doing what pleases God. Turn to 1 John 3. We read that just a moment ago. Go back again. 1 John 3, 22. Whatever we ask, we receive of Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. I can know I'm keeping His commandments and I can know I'm pleasing to Him. You say, that's perfection. No, it didn't. Not at all. Far from that. I can know I'm doing what He told me to do. You see, that's why knowledge is important. That's why knowledge is important. You see, if my knowledge is wrong, I might have a false assurance. Suppose my knowledge says, all you have to do to be saved, all I have to do to be right with the Lord is just believe there is a God. That's all you have to do. And I may believe there is a God, but I may be also worshiping out, but I still believe in one God and I could worship idols over here and I feel like I have hope of eternal life. Because my knowledge is wrong. That's why knowledge is important. If my knowledge is correct, then I have true assurance. I need to be keep checking my knowledge by the standard to see if it's true. That's why knowledge is so important. That's the basis of hope. But let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1. Here's a key point. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1. The basis of my hope is the resurrection of Christ, the grace of God, knowing I'm doing what the Lord told me to do. That's how I know. But it's based on my diligence. There's two times in this passage. If you don't have it underlined, this would be a good time to do that for now and for future study. Look at verse 5. 2 Peter 1 and verse 5. For this very reason, giving all diligence. Giving all diligence. That's a key. What does diligence mean? It means you're doing the best that you can. You're doing the very best you can. If you had a ball player that you say, he's a diligent player. But when he, if he's playing baseball, he gets up and he just kind of halfway swings the bat. And when he gets ready to run the bases, he just kind of halfway runs. Would you say he's a diligent? No. He's diligent when he's doing the best that he can do. Putting everything into it. Go back to our text. Look at verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. You see, it's not based upon perfection. You say, how do you know? Let's talk, let's talk about this context. You've heard this discussed many times. We need to be reminded of this principle. This very context, look at verse 5. Giving all diligence, doing the best you can is the key. How you, you say, how do you know it's not based on perfection? Let's take each one of these. Add your faith, virtue to virtue, knowledge. Are you perfect in knowledge? If you say you are, then that means you can't learn anything else. Not, a, not another single point. If there's anything lacking in your knowledge where you could, you could increase knowledge at all, then you're not perfect in knowledge. You say, well, no, I don't know of anybody that would ever be perfect in knowledge. All right, let's take another one. What about self-control? Are you perfect in self-control? You've maxed out. You've hit your top on that, and you couldn't be any better for the rest of your life if you tried. 
He said, well, no, 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 I think I could grow. I'm doing the best I can, but I'm, I, I, well, let's take another one then. Let's take another one like brotherly love. Do you, do you think you, you, you've maxed out in love and you're perfect in that and, and you're flawless? And you, could, you couldn't be any better next year even if you tried. You say, well, no, no, I'm not perfect. In fact, I'm not perfect in any of these. Truth of the matter is, we are not and never will be perfect in any of those. Do you see the key is, not perfection in those, but giving all diligence. Are you doing the best you can do in knowledge? Are you doing the best you can in love? Are you doing the best you can do in perseverance? And you say, well, I don't measure up to what so-and-so. Well, somebody else may have an ability for greater knowledge than you do, but are you doing the best, and are they doing their best? That's the key to this text. So what's the basis of my hope? It's the fact Jesus was raised from the dead, the fact that God's gracious and is forgiving, and that I can know I'm doing what's right, and my diligence, I'm doing the best I can do. Not that I am perfect. Do not equate lack of perfection with sin. Because that is not in, equated that in, that in this context, or any context for that matter. Lacking in perfection and knowledge doesn't mean you're sinning. You're still doing the best you can. Now, you could sin in that. Lacking in perfection in patience. You say, well, I'm not perfect. Well, are you doing the best you can? That's not equated with sin. More about that, perhaps, in a moment. Let's talk about another principle. Let's talk about the function of hope. In other words... Let's picture hope as something you just go out and buy, which you can, I understand. But what if I go out and I could buy a box of hope and now I've got hope? You say, I've got mine. I went and bought mine. What are you going to do with it? What good does it do you? How is your life different now that you've got this hope that you've bought and you've possessed? What's its function? What does it do? Here's what it does. Here's what it does for you. Hope causes you to be patient. Patient in the sense that you endure. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And as you're turning to 1 Thessalonians, you remember that Paul had left Thessalonica earlier than he meant to. Why? Well, because the cloud of persecution that was hanging over them, and he thought if he got out of there that it may die down some. So he left for their benefit. They're under severe persecution. He was concerned about them. Here's what he says. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope. The hope that you have causes you to endure and causes you to be patient. You, you may be frustrated with life. You may be frustrated with, with brethren. You may be frustrated with a lot of things. But are you enduring and not giving up? That's the idea of endurance. That's the idea of patience. So when somebody throws up their hands and quits and I'm, I'm done, I'm giving up on the Lord and I'm giving up on Christianity, they're not enduring. They don't have hope. Hope will cause you to endure. Here's something else. Turn to Romans 12. It causes you to rejoice. Look at Romans chapter 12. In dealing with relationships, which is what Romans 12 is about, he talks about not only being patient in tribulation, continuing steadfast in prayer, but rejoicing in hope. Hope causes you to rejoice. You see, when you have something to look forward to with desire and expectation, You've got a reason to be happy. The Christian who has hope should not be the one who has the longest face. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 12. Tell you something else it does. 
causes us to have boldness, courage. Therefore, since we have this hope, 2 Corinthians 3.12, we use great boldness of speech. Because we have boldness, because we have hope, that enables me to be bold as I speak. I have courage because I have hope. That's what it does for you. That's its function. That's what you can do with this, with this hope that you now have. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3. Here's another function. It causes you not to sorrow like others who have no hope. If you have a loved one that's a faithful child of God and a Christian and they die and you say, well, I'm, I'm sorrowful and I shed some tears, but I tell you what, I'm not going to cry forever about that. I say, well, why? Because I have hope for them. I have hope for myself. And so because of that hope, we don't sorrow like others. It's not all over now. There's something beyond. This is only the beginning. We're going to sing about this in a few moments, I think, if I heard the song right. That hope is pictured as the anchor of the soul. When hope is rooted in the resurrection of Christ and the knowledge of His will, then hope serves as an anchor of the soul that's, that's sure and it's steadfast. It holds. And by the way, and by the way, that is in the context of a church in Judea, perhaps Jerusalem, that is being, being tossed to and fro with the winds of persecution and attacks. And right in the middle of all of that, the, the hope serves as an anchor of the soul. It holds them sure and steadfast. Not going to let them move. Here's another function it has. It causes us to live holy. Rather than just that because I'm living right, now I know I have the hope of eternal life. That's true. There are passages like these that we're fixing to look at that say, because you do have hope, that ought to make you want to live right. Let's look at this one first in 1 Peter chapter 1. We've already been alluding to 1 Peter chapter 1. The living hope that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Remember that, verse 3? All right, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. In that context of talking about this hope of eternal life. Same chapter, but as he who called you is holy, be holy in all of your conduct. For he said, be holy for I am holy. In the context of talking about this hope, this living hope that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Remember all those passages? The salvation of your soul, verse 9. The praise, honor, and glory, verse 7. That same context. He says at verse 15, be holy for he is holy. This hope of verse 3 should make you want to live holy in all your conduct. Let's cite another passage on that. 1 John 3 and in verse 3. This one obviously comes from that direction. And everyone who hath this hope, the hope of the children of God, that we shall see him as he is earlier in the context. Verse 3. Purifies himself just as he is pure. Because you do have the hope of eternal life, you should be saying, you know what, I want to live pure like he is. That's the function it has. So again, picture you've been out and bought you a box of hope. Now you've got hope. What am I going to do with it? What's it going to do for me? It's going to help you be patient. It's going to help you rejoice. It's going to help you be bold. You're not going to sorrow like others. It serves as an anchor and you're going to live holy. Now I know the fact of hope, the nature of hope, the basis of hope, and the function of hope. Let's close by talking about some misconceptions about hope. There are some misconceptions, and here's the first. The doctrine of Calvinism, Calvinistic 
concept says there is eternal security. If someone says, do you believe in eternal security? I would say, sure I do. But what the Calvinists mean by eternal security is this. And that is, once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. And that is a misconception about the hope of eternal life. Their idea is that if you ever become a child of God, and some say you can't even become one, but if you do become one, and God has made you a child of God or elected you, however you become a child of God, depending on what flavor of Calvinist you are, once you are a child of God, you can never lose that. Once saved, always saved. You never could be lost. Well, let's turn to some simple passages here. Galatians chapter 5 and in verse 4. Paul is dealing in this context with the Judaizing teachers and the influence they have on the children of God. And he said, to become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. It is possible to fall from grace. It's possible to receive grace and then fall from grace. So once they were saved, now they're lost. So once saved, always saved is not the case. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. This is the most clear passage showing eternal security as the Calvinist describes. It is not found in the New Testament, just the opposite. For if we sin willfully after that we've received a knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. Now notice, after we received a knowledge of the truth. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment which should devour the adversaries. Anyone who rejected Moses died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and counted the blood of the covenant? Let us stop there for a moment. The Calvinist argued that if it's saying he's lost, that means he never was saved counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, an unholy thing. Yes, he was sanctified, and now he is lost. It's possible to be fearful of judgment. It's possible for one to wander from the truth and be worthy of death. That is, they're going to face eternal punishment. So that's a false concept about hope of eternal life, that once you have hope, you can never lose hope. But this one comes a little closer to home. And this is the idea of imputed righteousness. That's a false sense of hope. And the idea of imputed righteousness means God really doesn't see the sin in your life because of the perfect righteousness of Christ. Here's how that works. They go to Romans chapter 4. You might be looking at Romans chapter 4. Blessed is the man whom God does not impute sin, but imputes righteousness, the text says. Here's how Calvinism works. And here's how imputed righteousness works. It says that this perfect righteousness of Christ, Jesus Christ is perfectly righteous, that God takes his perfect righteousness and transfers that down here to us, is what he does. And so I look in the eyes of God as if I'm perfect. Now, I didn't deserve to be perfect, but God took his perfection and put it upon me. He vicariously transferred that to my account. So he took the perfect righteousness of Christ and he transferred that, and that's the idea, they think, of imputed righteousness. So here, in practicality, how that works. Here I am down here, and God has put this umbrella of the perfect righteousness of Christ over me, so I might be involved in a number of things. I might be living in adultery, contrary to the teaching of Matthew 19. I might be involved in some error. 
I might be involved in sin, I might be worshiping unscripturally, I might be doing a number of things, but when God looks down from heaven, he doesn't see the sin because he can't see it for seeing the perfect righteousness of Christ. He looks at me and he thinks, you're a perfect person. Oh, I didn't deserve that. God took the righteousness of Christ and put it to my account. And that's all God can see when he looks at me. And he looks at you. Now here's the problem with that. There's nothing in Romans 4 about the righteousness of Christ. That's not what Romans 4 is about. Read from beginning to end. Romans 4, go back and get 3, get 5, get anything. And you won't find anything about the perfect righteousness of Christ in the context of imputing righteousness. Never is it found. It's not found in that text. The righteousness that is imputed is our own. You say, I didn't think we were righteous. It is the idea of, an, it's an accounting term. It's like God has a ledger book. And on your account, he writes down, this person is righteous. He considers and counts you as a righteous person because you have become righteous, you've been forgiven. Same context, Romans 4 talks about imputing sin. Whose sin is that? We say, well, that'd be my sin. That's my, my own sin. Well, sure it is. So when you do wrong, God puts down on the ledger book, he puts sin out beside your name. That's your sin. If the righteousness in this context is the righteousness of Christ, then the sin must be the sin of Christ. And you say, well, no, 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 that won't work. Why not? If imputing sin is my own sin, the imputing righteousness, whose, whose righteousness is that? It's in that context of God imputing my, my right. That is, he considers me right. That's all it means. He reckons me as being righteous. Nothing in Romans 4 teaches this concept of imputed righteousness. One more, let's list. And this is the idea of continuous cleansing. It's an automatic forgiveness. Continuous gives the idea that God just continuously cleanses us. And some have worded it this way, that God forgives us of our sin even as we sin. They've illustrated it this way. They talk about the windshield wiper effect. That just as the water comes on your windshield and the windshield wiper just automatically washes it away, then God's grace just works like a windshield wiper. You sin, and before you can even think about it, God's grace is just wiping it away. And so even as you sin, you may be in adultery, and you can continue in that adultery, but God's just keep wiping it away. Every time you commit adultery, God wipes it away. Because that's how continuous cleansing works. Well, let's see how that works with Acts chapter 8. Turn with me to Acts 8. Simon committed sin. And he taught, was told his, his soul was in danger. He offered to buy the Holy Spirit with money, by the way. You remember that? That was his sin. And Peter said in verse 20, your money perish with you. He's in danger of perishing. He is committed, according to verse 6, wickedness. He is in need of forgiveness, and he is involved, verse 23, in iniquity. That doesn't sound like some kind of continuous cleansing. So what was he told to do? He was told to repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of heart be forgiven him. There was a condition of repenting and praying. You need to repent and pray that God will forgive you. Not automatically. You need to repent and pray of that. One more passage. 1 John 1 and verse 9. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Verse, verse uh, 7 says, Then if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confessing is just as, that is, the cleansing is just as continual as is the confession. In 1 John 1 and in verse 9. Well, that's the Christian's hope. What have we seen this morning? 
We start with the fact there is hope. We as children of God can have the hope of eternal life. The nature, what are we talking about when we talk about hope? The basis of that, the function of it, and then misconceptions that we might have concerning hope. There may be one or more present who doesn't have the hope of eternal life. If you're not a Christian, you're not a child of God, then you don't have the hope of eternal life. Would you become a child of God even this morning? Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?